All right, church, get your Bibles open. We've been in Mark's Gospel. Last time we were together uh, with a Ivan Tate in-between visit, we were in Mark chapter 11 and wrapping all of that up. We're going to start in Mark 11 this morning, and then we're going to work our way through by the grace of God through Mark 12, all within the limited time that we have this morning. Jesus, bless our time and expand it and help me in, in your mighty name. Um, hey, we've been having a lot of fun, and of course, Easter's coming up. We're going to end on uh, our series on the resurrection of Jesus. And so I think a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that at this point in Mark's gospel, the whole rest of the chapters all take place within one week's time. This is the Passion Week. Last time we left you, Jesus was stirring things up. He was in the temple, was he not? And he was cleaning house. And so we're going to go back to Mark chapter 11 and begin in verse 27 because Jesus has the audacity to go back into Jerusalem and back into the temple. How I many you know that takes courage, all right? He just caused a major, major, major stir, and now he's going right back to the place where he just caused uh, all the problems to the religious establishment. I told you before, this is the culmination of all of human history as Jesus is fulfilling the purpose for his coming, which was to redeem and to ransom a people for himself. Uh, while he's tried to keep it all secret up to this point, it's no longer a secret, and things are starting to heat up. And so let's take a look at Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 27. And I'm talking this morning that the title of this message is called Tricks and Treats. Tricks and Treats. Because I'm going to give you three tricks that the religious establishment tried to play on Jesus, but then I'm going to give you three amazing treats about true religion. And there's a contrast here between the world's religion and between a true encounter and relationship with Jesus. How many know they're miles apart? And how many would you like to be part of a church that's part of the latter, not the former? And we don't want to play religion around here. We want to have a passion for Jesus. And before I forget, let me quickly say hi to all of our online folks. We're grateful that you guys tune in and watch not only on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. Also, hello to all of our folks in the overflow area. Thank you, guys. We love you. We never forget you over there. All right, Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let's start reading there. It says, again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. So we have a, immediately a, a confrontation taking place at church. Imagine that. They demand, some of you that have been around church a long time, you, I, I knew who was laughing and who was wait, waiting for that to hit him off the back wall. All right, when it bounced back. They demanded... By what authority are you doing all these things, and who gave you the right to do them? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things, Jesus said, if you answer one question. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. And I want you to notice their response. How I many of you know the answer is either or? And they're not interested in giving the truth. These, these folks are political spinners, all right? These guys are religious politicians. Take a look at what they do. They get together and they have a little pregame huddle. They talk it over among themselves. They said, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't we believe John? But do we dare say that it was merely human? For if It says, for they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. And so finally they replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. The first trick is the trick of authority. They're basically saying, who gives you the right 
to come in here to this temple and to make a mess of things like you did last time you showed up the day before, whatever. Who gives you the authority to do this? We want to know. What I want you to understand is Jesus had already pronounced judgment on the temple. He called them all a den of thieves because the priests and the religious leaders were using the temple worship as a cover for robbing and exploiting people. And so I want you to see something here. I found this to be true, especially the older I get. Follow the money. What people don't like is when the gospel actually impacts their livelihood. How many know there are certain livelihoods, for instance, that are not acceptable for Christians. And so when people get saved, and maybe they're in a livelihood that wasn't a godly livelihood or or one that the Lord blesses, how many know you have a choice to make between money and the authority of Jesus over your life? And so can I tell you something? These folks are not mad at Jesus because they're truth seekers or because they're God lovers. They're mad at Jesus because he's messing up their racket. He's messing up their income stream. Imagine that, religious people focusing on money. Can I just tell you all something? I, I, you know, I, like I said, I've been around a while. I've, watched, I, I've been raised in church my whole life, and I've watched the body of Christ. And l- let me just say this. I don't know of anything that hurts the reputation of Christ's people and of the church more than the misuse of money. When we, how about this? When we say that the most important thing in our lives is Jesus, the most important person, most important relationship. Amen? How many, was, how many can say amen to that? And I'm going to just make it personal because he's talking to religious leaders. He's not talking to the people. He's talking to religious leaders. But if I, as a lifestyle, turn the church into a money racket, and it's all about material things, and it's all about the biggest this and the biggest that and whatever, if I, as a man of God, do that, can I just tell you something? That is such a mockery of everything that I would be preaching. Not that God's not trying to bless and prosper his people. Can we, get, can we solve that? That is yes. But we talk about this all the time. The prosperity that comes to us is for a purpose. If you lose the purpose and you just focus on prosperity, you're no different than somebody who doesn't even know Christ. How you know the Lord says, if you want to be smart, take what I've given you and use it for kingdom purposes and send it ahead where you can enjoy it forever, not where the moths and the rust wipe it all out here. Now, we've all had situations, I'm not going to name names, but everybody knows situations where the world has mocked the church because some, you know, big known evangelist or somebody that's on TV or whatever, um, their lavish lifestyle is exposed. So here's what they're, they're, ta- they're taking gifts that were given to the Lord for temple, for God's use, and they're using those resources for personal means and to live lavish lifestyle. Now, how many know completely unacceptable for a man of God? Completely unacceptable. So I just want to say, we just welcomed a whole bunch of new people here. This is from the bottom of my heart. Financial integrity matters more in this house uh, than just about anything. How we spend what God blesses us with and what you give to the Lord, how we spend that is really, really a big deal. So transparency, authenticity, uh, simplicity, uh, All these are good words here, and I hope those are good words for you because we want you to operate with a spirit of the highest integrity as it relates to how we handle resources. So Jesus is saying the church, the temple, has become a den of thieves. In other words, you're ripping people off in in God's name. And you you remember how Jesus responded to that. He wasn't happy. 
And so now they're coming back. Well, who gives you the right to come in here? And basically, I'm reading between the lines, mess up our racket, mess up what's going back on. So Jesus doesn't answer their question. He actually asks them a question back. He puts the ball in their court. And I found this to be true. We need to know what we stand for and what we don't stand for. Amen? In other words, be a person of conviction. What do you believe? What matters? Where do you find your hope? What are you basing your confidence in? Uh, in other words, Jesus asked him, tell me, the, answer me this question. John's baptism. Now, how many of you know John and Jesus are a package deal? John's the forerunner. John's the one coming ahead of Jesus. John's the one clearing the way. John and Jesus are the package deal. You don't have one without the other. And the Pharisees know it. But they won't take a stand because they're not interested in truth. They're more interested in being politically correct or retaining their popularity with the people. Two things God is not concerned about at all. Have you ever complained to the Lord, Lord, if I stand up for you, what's going to happen to my reputation? And you get no sympathy from God. Because I found something over the years. God is not concerned with my reputation one bit. <laughs> He's concerned with his reputation which is the only reputation that matters. So these religious leaders, here's what they're doing. Do we, do, do we tell them what we really think and have the people mad at us, or do we tell them this and have God mad at us? What, what are we going to do here? How do, how do we answer this question? And Jesus basically says to them, well, since you guys are not going to be committed to an answer, then I'm not going to be committed to answering you. How many know major mic drop right there? And then Jesus goes on to tell a little story. And the problem is, the story that he tells, the Pharisees know he's talking right to them. Now, I don't have the sto story on the screen, but open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, and let's take a look at the first verse there. This is the story Jesus goes into immediately. He says, uh, then Jesus began teaching them with, the, with stories. He said, a man planted a vineyard, and he built a wall around it, and he dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and he built a lookout tower and then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers and moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farm hands grabbed the servant, they beat him up, and they sent him back empty-handed. Then uh, the owner sent another servant, but they insulted him and they beat him over the head. And then the next servant uh, he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed, until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to one another, here comes the heir to his estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. And so they grabbed him and murdered him, and they threw his body out of the vineyard. And I want you to look at verse 9. This is one of the most haunting, penetrating questions in all of the Bible. Jesus looks at the crowd, in particular at the religious leaders, and says, What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do, Jesus asked. I tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. This is powerful. Jesus is saying, Here's what my father has done. My father is the owner of the vineyard. Of course, the vineyard is the nation of Israel. The, the tenants of the vineyard are the high priests, the rulers that they've been given charge to lead God's people so that they would bear fruit to the glory of God. And the servants are the prophets who were sent by God. Every time God sent a prophet, 
the religious leaders mistreated or killed them. So check this out. He's standing in front of the whole religious hierarchy, and he tells this story about them, and they absolutely know it's about them. Later it says they, they were furious with what Jesus said, and they figured out, how do, I kill, how do we go about to kill him? So instead of being concerned with truth, which they just got right between their eyes, uh, they're wanting to get rid of Jesus. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you know we live in a nation where the gospel is preached almost everywhere? We've got Christian radio, Christian television, we've got Christian books, we've got Christian churches on the corner, we've got Christian podcasts, we've got Christian music, we've got Christian concerts. How many of you know God, Americans are going to be held much more responsible for the light level of light that we receive? And as we're going to get into Mark chapter 13 next week, it's all about the second coming. How many of you know Christ is coming and the owner of the vineyard is going to demonstrate his wrath against people who have killed the prophets and killed his son. So, so how many of you know when, when God keeps sending people in your life over and over again to share Jesus with you and tell you about why you need uh, to, to submit your life to him, and we just keep acting like it's not important. We keep pushing Jesus away, pushing Jesus away, killing the messenger, so to speak. God asked the question, Jesus asked the question about the Father, what do you think the owner's going to do? What do you think is his, his response when he has sent us people over and over and over again and then finally gave his son? to die on the cross for us, paid the ultimate sacrifice, and we murdered his son and threw him outside of the vineyard. What do you think he is going to do? I cannot imagine the weight of that question right in the face of the very people who have spent their life killing prophets and rejecting the Son of God. Now, this is a serious thing. I, I love what, what uh, Charles Spurgeon said about this passage. He said, if you do not hear the well-beloved Son of God, you have refused your last hope. He is God's ultimatum. Nothing remains when Christ is refused. No one else can be sent. Heaven itself contains no further messenger. If Christ be rejected, hope is rejected. What a powerful statement. In other words, God can only send so many messengers, and the final messenger is his son. And if you reject his son, what hope do you have? On the great day, what hope do you have? if you spent your life pushing the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God aside? This is a serious question. And even those of us that are in Christ and those of us who know that we're saved, and I hope everybody in here has an assurance that, yes, I belong to Jesus Christ, but this is a crazy, awesome question. You're going to stand before God someday, and, and you're going to give an account for your life. And the people that have reached out and loved you and shared the gospel with you and prayed for you and encouraged you and people that have set an example for you and finally the son himself who's been pursuing you through other people's lives. And, and there will be people that stand on the great day uh, and, and they're guilty because they've spent their whole life rejecting, 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 rejecting. If you're here today, don't be one of those people. What is the owner going to say when you stand before him? And everything that he did for you, how I many you know the, the gospel, the Bible, this, this is a love letter. God speaking to us is an invitation to truth and to reality in the life. This, this is the love letter. And yet people reject the Bible. They reject, they reject the authority of God. We're talking about whose authority? Who has the authority? And, and here's Jesus' answer. Ready for this? Oh, you want to know whose authority? I'm the, son, I'm, the, I'm the son of the owner of the, of the uh, vineyard. That's my authority. I'm the son of the owner. 
That's why I'm here, and that's why I'm messing up the temple. Because the temple belongs to my Father, and I'm coming in his name, and I'm cleaning house, and I do it in the Father's authority. That's who Jesus is. He is the one who represents the Father. He is the Son. He is the beloved Son. And Jesus goes on, and he says, but you beat him. And you Basically, he's predicting his own death and crucifixion. He says, this is what you're going to do. In other words, I know what you have in store because you're not taking my life. I'm willingly giving my life away. I know what you're going to do. You're going to crucify me. You're going to murder me. You're going to throw me outside the, outside the city and crucify me on Calvary. I know what you have up your sleeves. But here's the question I want to leave with you. What is the owner going to do when he shows up? And he tells him what he's going to do. There will be judgment that comes. There, there will be the wrath of God that comes on those who have rejected his son. And then Jesus goes on preaching some more good preaching here. Look at what he says next. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is God's doing, and it's wonderful to see. Jesus is saying, you're rejecting me, but I'm telling you the person standing in front of you is not only a son, but he's the stone. God is going to use me, Jesus speaking, God is going to use me, uh, the Messiah, to be the cornerstone of the church that he's raising up. There will be a church that worships in spirit and in truth, not a religious defiling kind of place like this, a den of thieves, but I'm going to be the corner of something big and brand new that God's raising up in the earth called the church of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is right in their face. And you could tell he's on a roll, but they don't like the message very much. Look at what it says in verse 12. The religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus, but because they realized he was telling the story against them, they were, they were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. Can I tell you something? God's people are not afraid of the crowd. They're afraid of the owner. The world is always playing politics and trying to look good and keep their reputation and all that. Listen to me. God's people are concerned with pleasing one person, the owner of the vineyard. And they're concerned with loving one person, the son uh, who has been sent. Uh, so we don't play the way the world plays. And I, I found this to be true. And, and, and I just got to say this. There's not a pastor that's worth his salt that's more afraid of people than the Lord that's more afraid of, of good standing with the audience than good standing with God. And I want to encourage you, live with a clean conscience before God. Uh, live with a, with a love for truth. Make a stand on what you believe. Don't, let, don't be afraid about all the what ifs. Stand for truth. Always stand for truth. Stand according to your conscience. Let, let your yea be yea and your, and your no be no. Amen? Just be, know what you believe. And don't be afraid to stand up for what you believe. Because there is a day of reckoning that's coming, and Jesus is, is reminding them that he's the son and he's the cornerstone of all that God is doing, and he needs to be the son in our lives, the beautiful son of God, and the cornerstone of everything that he's doing in us. Remember when Jesus was a little boy and he was, uh, his parents were trying to find him, and they went to the temple. He was 12 years old. This is Luke chapter 2, verse 49. Uh, uh, when, they, when Jesus saw his mother, 
He said, why did you need to search? Didn't you know I must be in my father's house? Jesus understood that God's the owner of the vineyard, and he is in his father's house. How many of you know he's still uh, the son who is living in his father's house or is in his father's house? So Jesus needs to be welcome on Sunday mornings as we gather together because this is his house, it's his church, and we exist for him. So the first trick was a trick of authority. The second trick is a trick about allegiance. Look with me in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. It says, later the leader sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. So this is, this is a full-blown trap. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are, how impartial, and how you don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we pay them? A massive trick again. Either way, Jesus answers, there's going to be a whole group of people that are going to be after his life, all right? So Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. Next verse, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin, and I'll tell you. And when they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well, then Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and give to God what belongs to God. And his reply completely amazed them. Now, I want you to see this. Jesus didn't take a coin out of his own pocket. He asked the people who were asking him the questions for a coin. He was looking for some skin in the game. They're complaining about, about taxes, and they're complaining about oppression. And he says, oh, let me, you're asking about taxes. Give me a coin. So imagine some of the religious leaders reaching in their pocket and pulling out a coin. Now, Jesus already knows they're quite fond of money, all right? And Jesus says, uh, let me see that coin. Oh, whose inscription's on it? Oh, it's, it's Caesar's inscription. What he's saying is you already use Caesar's money, and you're already operating in Caesar's system. You probably don't have that big of a problem. In fact, I already know you're pretty fond of Caesar's coins. So since Caesar's face is on that coin, why don't you give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar? But here's the bigger issue. Are you giving to God what belongs to God? Because if you were a coin, you are stamped in the image and likeness of God. The coin belongs to Caesar, but you belong to God. And are you giving to him the worship that's due him? Are you giving to him the honor that's due him? Are you living as a person stamped in the image and likeness of God? In other words, are you rendering to God what belongs to God? And I just need to, you know, I'm reading a really great book right now, by the way. Uh, some of you are going, Pastor, what kind of strange books are you reading? I'm reading a book about the communist underground church and what they've been dealing with with church state issues for the last 50 years because I think we're running into some of the same issues in America now and we should probably know our theology, all right? I mean, you know, it's very important to, uh, for us to understand what belongs to the Lord and what belongs to the state. Yes, right. The same questions are important. Do we pay taxes? Absolutely, we should be paying taxes. We should not be paying taxes at a higher rate than God's tithe. Yeah, I receive that. <laughs> when the state demands more of you than God asks for and that God demands, we might have a state that's acting like God. Just a thought. I mean, you know, your worship belongs to the Lord. It doesn't apply to the state. 
We ran into these issues. Like, the governor does not tell you how to worship or when to take communion or when to sing or when not to sing. I mean, that's, that's, that's not what states do. That's states stepping into the church. I mean, I'm just telling you these things because Jesus is trying to teach here. The bigger question is not what we owe to the state. We, owe, we understand we owe the state. The state has a legitimate godly function. But we have to constantly remind the state that the state is not God. And I want to constantly remind Christians that blind obedience to the state is not always godly when the state is encroached in areas where they don't belong. Then it's actually tyranny, and we shouldn't be rolling over and just falling. So so here's my point. I don't ever expect a, a governmental bureaucracy to be giving us the guidelines about what we do in the church. No matter what's happening. Like China. China, China, like Russia. You don't have anything in your church in Russia that the government hasn't stamped their approval on. That's called the state getting into God's business and the church's business. I mean, these are important things. I'm just trying to be real practical. Anybody that loves freedom, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God, and your worship and your conscience is reserved for God and God alone. So it's an important reminder because I don't think we're out of the wood yet. I think we're going to be looking at round two or round three or whatever, uh, depending on how much revival and reformation we see in our nation. But Jesus is really challenging these guys about, hey, have you, all, all of you that are concerned about money and taxes, are you giving to the Lord what belongs to the Lord? Let's get to the next trick, all right? And I find this trick to be happening all the time in the church. It's a theological dispute, an ecclesiastical dispute that goes nowhere. Have any of you have seen, I mean, if you're on Facebook or social media, you will find people arguing about things that don't matter a hill of beans, uh, on the grand scheme of things. And I get amazed at, at, at what people try to stir up. And I've told you before, you know, all these beautiful people that were standing up here, if we ask this question, what church denomination do you come from? And we worked our way down. Do you know that there would be people that we just welcomed into our family that are diametrically opposite on certain doctrinal distinctions? <laughs> oh, my you mean, you mean we could actually love Jesus and focus on the main thing and not have to have doctrinal conformity or uniformity? Wow. You mean we don't have to argue about things that at the, at the great day aren't going to matter? That we can actually keep the main thing, the main thing. So these guys got into, these are the Sadducees. They were the religious liberals. They were the woke church crowd of their day. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. That was it. And they denied the resurrection from the dead. And so they go into this little conundrum. They're, they're trying to make Jesus look foolish. I mean, you know, bad idea. Bad idea. So they say, hey, Jesus, this guy was married to his wife. And the guy died before they had kids, and so therefore the, 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 the property and the inheritance has nowhere to flow, and, and according to their culture and their law. So the Old Testament law would require that the, that the closest of kin, you read the book of Ruth, you get a picture for this, but the closest of kin would take on this woman as his wife so that she could have children, so that the family name would continue. Well, closest of kin number two, he marries her, he dies. Number three marries her dies. How many of you know you don't want to be number four, five, six, or seven? 
But, so, okay, so number four dies, number five dies, number six dies, number seven dies, and then she dies. And so they said, Jesus, on the great day when we're in heaven together, who's going to be this woman's husband? <laughs> they're, they're, they're laughing. They're like, ah, we got him, we got him. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus said, you guys don't get it. Number one, you don't know the scriptures. Talk about an insult to religious people. You don't know your Bible. Oh! That's fight words for fighting right there. You don't know your Bible. And number two, you don't understand the power of God. In other words, your view of heaven is all messed up. Can I just tell you, there's a lot of people's views of heaven that's all messed up. If your understanding of heaven does not create within you such a sense of passion and excitement to experience technicolor when you've been living in black and white, you got the wrong thing. If you think you're going to float around on a cloud and play a harp for the rest of your life, um, and you're wondering, why can't I get excited about heaven? Because you got a lousy theology of heaven. That's why. Jesus is saying, you got it all messed up. Heaven's not going to be about who you're married to. In fact, we're going to be like the angels. It's going to be superior in every way to what we're dealing with right here. And just a reminder, this quote has never, never left my spirit. Randy Alcorn, he says, for the person that doesn't know Jesus, this right here, right now, is the closest thing to heaven they'll ever experience. And for the person who loves Jesus with all their heart, this is the closest to hell we will ever experience. Isn't that awesome? I love that. So Jesus is saying, you guys got it all wrong, man. You, you, need to, you need to know the word, and you need to know the power of God. And he accused them of knowing neither. Now, can I just share something with you? We have all kinds of amazing friends that come through here. I know some of you are coming from very conservative backgrounds. Some of you have already told me, man, we never talked about the Holy Spirit at our church. And then we bring in somebody like Ivan Tate, Holy Spirit on steroids, you know. <laughs> holla, holla, holla. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I just, I love the brother because he, that, that statement about religious people choke on freedom is absolutely true. If you got a problem laughing in church, you might need some freedom. If you, if you are sitting there like the, like the Sadducees waiting for someone to say something that is slightly different than what you think, um, come on, come on. Here's the way I look at it. I always look at a person's fruit. And you know, Jesus did too. I look at a person's fruit. And can I just tell you something? Any of us in this room that thinks we got it all figured out, we're kidding ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have the essentials figured out because those are incredibly clear and we better be solid on the essentials. Amen. I'm talking about stuff that maybe you haven't experienced. Like maybe you haven't experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've never had the word work through you at the gift of prophecy. Maybe you've never seen the gifts of the Holy Spirit operating in your life. But you know what? They're in the Bible and other people are moving in those gifts. So here's what a good heart says. Hey, why can't I have fun like that? I would like to see God work through me like that. But a religious person says, I don't know about that. I mean, I, 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 that never happened to me before. And I, you know, <laughs> well, lighten up. Would you like it to happen to you? Would you like to see more of the power of God moving through your life? Or do you, are you comfortable? But don't throw stones at people that you just don't understand. And always, how about this? Always be humble. And never feel like you've arrived or that you're the standard bearer for truth. Because none of us are. 
So we stay low, we keep loving Jesus, we keep pursuing the Lord, and we, and listen, and we avoid stupid arguments. Like, which one of the seven husbands is going to be this lady's husband in heaven? Because it doesn't matter. I'm going to tell you guys something right now that's going to make some of you mad. I'm just telling you. I'm going to have my wife preach on Mother's Day. I said, well, in our faith tradition, we don't never had women behind the pulpit. Well, you'll experience it on Mother's Day. (laughs) Well, I don't know. Okay. On that issue, does that determine whether or not you're saved or not and you're going to heaven? No! So loosen up! And we can have some discussions about this or that or this verse or that verse or where you got the other. But this is my point. If you're that kind of person, you're going to constantly be crimping the power of the Holy Spirit in your life because you're living in constant judgment all the time and everything has to be your way. Stop it. Stay low. Stay teachable. Stay humble. So Jesus blows their circuits once again. Because look at what Jesus says. If I can get back to my notes. Jesus says, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. And then he goes on, he blows us some more of their theology. Remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Look at verse 26. But now, as to whether the dead will be raised, haven't you ever read about this in the writings of Moses in the story of the burning bush? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus says, so he is the God of the living and not the dead. You have made a serious error. In other words, your theology of the resurrection of the dead is seriously wrong because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive, and he, God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. Another mic drop. Just blew their theology right out of the water. Now listen, this is in a day when they don't have a thousand different channels on cable for entertainment. You know what's going on right now? They're watching this debate publicly, and they're having a blast. Like Jesus is going, fake news, fake news, fake news. <laughs> and, uh, and these people are like, I knew, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, again, that was not a political statement. I'm saying he's saying what everybody in their hearts knew to be true, but Jesus was verbalizing it and blowing it up. It was awesome. Take a look. We'll move it on. I'm going to give you three treats. Everybody say three treats. Treat number one, loving God with your entire being. A a, a guy comes up who has a legitimate question. How many know there are questioners and then there are people with honest questions? There's a big difference. Always have a heart that says, Jesus, show me this or teach me that. Or, Lord, what do you mean by that? That's a good heart. Not, well, God, if you're real, then no, that's a questioning heart. That's, That's not something God ever honors. But he honors an honest heart. Look at what it says here. One of the teachers of the religious law was standing there listening to the debate, and he realized that Jesus had answered well. And so he said, Jesus, of all the commandments, which one is the most important? Jesus goes on, as you guys know. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor.
neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And the religious, you know, uh, or the, the teacher here says this is amazing, and he's excited, and he says, I'm trying to do all this, and Jesus, realizing that the man understood much, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, it says nobody dared ask Jesus any more questions. They had, they had, had enough. But check this out. Here's, here's the treat. Here's what's good news. We don't have to be religious. We can actually love God with our entire being. How many of you think this would be really fun to try doing for the rest of eternity? Loving God with all of your mind. That means it's okay to think deeply about things. I find this to be true. When men get discipled, they re-encounter books, and when they actually read a book, their brain starts working again. Ladies, help me out, because we're trying to help you out, right? Their brain starts working again, and when their brain starts working again, they discover truth, and when they discover truth, light comes in, and when they discover light, their heart feels the warmth, and when their heart gets warm, they want to do it more, and it's amazing what happens when you love God with your brains and all of your mind, all of your strength, all of the passion of your heart. All of your emotions. How many of you know it's okay to love God with your emotions? Like that's what we get to do during worship is just vent our affection to the Lord. And let me just say something else. It's a very important order. It is impossible to love the world properly if you don't love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength first. There's a lot of churches today that have compromised the scriptures because they want to love people. In other words, be kind to people, be nice to people. I mean, no, those are all biblical qualities. We should be kind and nice to people. But it's the loving God with your mind and your heart and your strength that gives you the definition of what love is. If you don't have a definition of what love is, then how can you, how can you love anybody else? You don't, we don't even know what love is. So it's when we love God with everything in us first that we're able to love our neighbor as ourselves. How many of you want to love God more? Wave at me if that's you. And how many of you want to love this world more? Jesus says it's possible. You don't have to be religious and be a Pharisee. You can actually be full of the love of God from head to toe, and you can make an impact with your life. How many of you know Dick and Susie were sharing with me um, some of the testimonies from the team in Ukraine, uh, and the amazing thing, the, the people there were so humbled, they kept saying, in these little villages, you guys came all the way from the United States, landed in two different countries, got on a, got on a van and drove 14 hours to a battle zone to love us and to care for us. These people were wrecked. But how many of you know that's what the love of God does for us? It causes us to do crazy things, radical things, dangerous things sometimes. Um, but that's the love of God. Second treat that Jesus gives here, after loving him with our entire being, is uh, he reminds us that he is greater than David. Look at verse 35. Later, as Jesus was teaching in the temple, he asked, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. And listen to the question Jesus asked. Since David himself was called, or called the, the Messiah my Lord. So David called the Messiah Lord. How can the Messiah be his son? Brain melt right at this point. And look at what the crowd, the crowd listened to him with great delight. This is awesome. Jesus basically says, you're thinking I'm going to come in the line of David, but I'm actually, I actually precede David. I am the eternal son of God. I'm greater than David. The one standing in your midst is not going to just be a king like David. I'm a king greater than David. 
I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. And then Jesus uh, rattles the, the Pharisees' camp a little bit. He, look at what he says in verse 38. Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes, and they receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and at the head table at the banquet. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. How I many of you know Jesus is hitting on all cylinders now? He says, now he's pointing them right out. You guys pray these fancy prayers. Look at the gowns and all the robes and all the religious stuff you're in. But I know what you're doing. You're ripping off widows. You're hurting. You're, uh, you're, you're stealing from orphans. You're in all this. I know what you're up to. And it's wicked. He just calls them right out. And then I want to end with this, another treat. After the crowd is celebrating. How many you know the crowd loves Jesus because Jesus is telling it like it is? Look at the third treat, a picture of, of pure religion here. Mark chapter 12. We'll close with this. Verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. But then a poor widow came and she dropped in two small coins. And Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, as poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. The word that's used here, given a tiny part of their surplus, is the word where, where we get our understanding of leftovers. It's the literal meaning. They, what, he, what Jesus is saying is all the rich folks that were, that were all about appearance, they're only giving what's left over. This woman is giving everything that she had. And when Jesus actually stops people in their tracks, Jesus, again, being the son of God, when he stops people and says, look at that, how I many you know you better pay attention? Because God's saying there's something happening right now that is so significant, I don't want you to miss it. They're giving leftovers. Does anybody in this room like leftovers? Like, you remember like two weeks after Thanksgiving and you're on your, like the 16th iteration of what you can do with turkey? And, you know, I used to always try to sell it to the kids. Hey, come on, it's turkey, whatever, it's going to be great. But the word turkey always was a dead giveaway. Sometimes I feel like in church we're guilty of giving the Lord turkey leftovers on like the second week after we should have put the turkey away, all right? We should have retired the turkey. We're still giving him leftovers. Can I tell you what stops the heart of God? When we give him our best. And we give it to him first. In other words, Jesus says, look at her. She's not giving me leftovers. She's giving me everything. Jesus is saying, I want you to be like that. And I want to ask you all, again, is this the weekend or what day is it? Wait a minute. Oh, that's right. It's not the weekend. It's the weekend for ungodly people. And what do people do on Sundays that, that don't love Jesus? What do they do? They, they're recuperating. They're recuperating to start their week on Monday because their, work, their week revolves around their income, their job. But this is the first day of the week. Yes. I just like to keep reminding you. And so many people, they, they, not, they can't come to church on Sunday because they're tired or they're hungover because a Saturday is killing them and they have to recover on Sunday and they're giving left what's left over. 
And can I just tell you, don't give your creator the dregs of your week. Like you get to the bottom of your coffee cup when you've been eating oil cookies. And you let all of your kids take a drink and there's floaties. Everybody know? You got floaties. You say, here, Lord, we saved you a drink. Who wants to drink that? I couldn't even drink it after my kids. It's like, oh, what is that? What is, where did that come from? It's like this is the offering we offer. Here, Lord, have, have the drink, the, the last of the cup. No, give him the first drink. Give him the best of your life. Give him, give him your heart. Give him everything. Love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Start your week. I'm not preaching to the choir. I'm exhorting us. We're starting our week. Saying, Lord, here we are. Take my life. Take my everything. Whose authority? He is the son of the owner of it all. He has all authority over our lives. Give him the best. You don't have to be a religious Pharisee. You don't have to go through the motions. You can come humbly. You can experience the living God. What a, what a blessing. You don't have to get all wrapped up in religious arguments. You can love God and you can love people and you can watch God work through you in amazing ways. Stand to your feet. I want to pray with us this morning. Thank you, Lord. Father, we just yield ourselves to you right now. We thank you for the truth in your word. We thank you for the wisdom of Jesus to destroy every argument. And Lord, we thank you for the clear teaching that Jesus gave us about now and about the life to come and about the judgments that's coming. Lord, may, may there not be a person in this room that's not prepared and ready for that day. Jesus said to that man, you're so close. You're so close to the kingdom. What was lacking? Two things. Repentance. To recognize, how many of you know, none of us has ever, ever loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so we simply ask the Lord, 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 forgive me forever, wherever I've dropped the ball. And then on the heels of repentance, what, what gets us in the kingdom? Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, that he's paid the price, that he lived a perfect life. And what are we going to say on the great day when the owner comes? What are we going to say? I don't know about you, but I'm going to say... Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, my Savior and my Lord. I've embraced him. I've lived for him. I've given my best. I've loved him with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Hallelujah. That, that's the answer uh, that gets you in the kingdom. So I just pray right now, there might be some of you here today that, that the, the invitations, the outreach, the touches of God in your life have been many, the goodness of God, the kindness of God. But today's another invitation to say, don't keep pushing him away. Yield your life to him. There's going to be people up front ready to pray with you about whatever it is that's going on. And how many of you know nothing is impossible for God? We, we want to keep believing for great, great miracles that God's doing in this place. We had people healed this morning. We had people saved at first service. It was amazing. We had a testimony of a child that was healed uh, over this weekend with Ivan Tate being here and the prayer that went up. So I just pray that whatever, whatever's going on in your life, there are people here who want to love you, pray with you, agree with you. So, Father, bless us now as we head out to our mission field. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen. Love you all like crazy. Make sure you hug one of our new folks and welcome them. If you need prayer, come on down.